You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning, again. So one of the things that we, I think, often miss about sin is that sin drives shame. Right? Even even in the biblical story, when you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the the immediate consequence of sin is deep and profound shame. So in Genesis 3, uh, right, God tells humanity, hey, you can eat of all of these trees in the garden, but of this one tree I don't want you to eat because, because when you eat it, you will die. And so we know the story or likely know the story. Um, Adam and Eve eat from the tree. And in that moment, they don't die, not in the way that we would expect them to, right? They don't drop dead. And yet, what happens in that moment is they somehow have been transformed into a creature that feels the need to hide from one another, right? They recognize that they are naked. uh, People say I say that word weird, sorry. It's the rodeo, so it's naked, okay? Sorry, it's just always going to be naked. They were naked and forever will be naked, right? So they cover their, their nakedness, and hiding from one another, and then the God who would regularly meet them and walk with them shows up, and they hide. Humanity was made for love. If that's too hippie for you, uh, we'll put it in more religious language. Humanity was made for communion. To be united in a relationship, perfect union with God and with one another, What sin does fundamentally, foundationally, intrinsically is it severs communion. It destroys relationship. It uh, submarines love. And the response to that is deep and profound shame. So if you are um, interested in Instagram psychology, like I am, um, I moonlight as a psychologist through all the, the fun, quippy quotes I read on Instagram. Uh, you'll know that the difference between shame and guilt, according to Brene Brown and several others, is guilt is, hey, I've done something wrong, and shame is, I am something wrong. Adam and Eve's response, humanity's response to God was not, oh no, we've slipped up. God who is love, will you somehow like, we throw ourselves on you and, and hope for your mercy? No, no, instead they run, they hide, they isolate. Their response was not, I've done something wrong. Their response was, we are fundamentally wrong. We are fundamentally broken. We are fundamentally 
unlovable. I really like this quote um, from a clinical psychologist named Alan Downs. He wrote a book called Velvet Rage. It's a book for um, gay men and women who are growing up in a straight world. And one of the things that he talks about in that challenge is he says there's a difference between homophobia, those young people who are growing up with this sense of like, hey, I think my sexuality might be different from someone else's sexuality, who then fear the reality that their sexuality is different, right? So there's homophobia, which is the fear of being gay. But then he says what most people in that world experience is not actually homophobia. What most people in that world experience living in that reality is shame, which he describes as not a fear of being gay, but instead a feeling of being unlovable. Because I am this way, no one will ever love me. Because I am this way, surely my parents could never love me. Because I am this way, the church certainly doesn't love me. Because I am this way, how could God ever love me? Shame. But it's beyond that, because I think what uh, Alan Downs points to here is something that everyone, regardless of your sexuality, wrestles with, struggles with, and is somehow born into. We are somehow, I think, born into this idea that you are not enough. And and for us, in 2024, in the United States of America, it likely presents itself in some way that says, you are not enough, so you need to go and get a different degree. You are not enough, and so you need to get a little bit better grades. You are not enough, and so you need to have a few more friends, or maybe better friends that are like outside of your social class. You are not enough, and so you need a different job, a different title. You are not enough, so you need more power, more money. You are not enough, so you need a different car, a different girl, a different guy, a different whatever. And we go through life with this unbearable sense of you have to do more, be more, work harder, and the most nefarious way this presents itself is in our religion, where we somehow believe, right, even as people of the cross, that what God really needs from us is that we need to be better, do more religious stuff, be more moral people. We have to somehow muster up something to make God love us. Kristen Neff, another Instagram encounter, by the way, a professor at UT's psychology, psychology, psychology department, uh, psychology department, says that loneliness stems from the feeling that we don't belong, whether or not we're actually in the presence of others. So think about this reality for just a moment, right? If we're going to take this and apply it to God. When we experience shame, when we experience a feeling of that we do not belong, that God does not want us and God does not want to be with us, what we are experiencing despite the fact that we are in the presence of God is loneliness and isolation. We live in hiding. We hide from God. We hide from one another. One of the reasons that we begin most of our services with confession It's not because you're dirty, rotten scoundrels and you need to get clean before we worship Jesus. Maybe that's me. It's not y'all. Certainly not y'all. 
One of the reasons that we open up our service in confession is because how else can we open up our service? And recognizing like, yeah, no, you know what? I haven't perfectly loved my neighbor. You know what? I haven't even perfectly loved myself. I haven't perfectly loved God. And being honest about the lives we live is actually being honest and vulnerable and bearing our souls in the presence of a God that we trust and hope and pray and believe is actually really loving us even in our sin, even in our limitation, even in our brokenness. I wonder how we've heard the story of Jesus and how maybe in some ways that this has solidified this idea that we are, in fact, unlovable. And instead of driving us towards freedom and forgiveness and grace and communion, some of the ways we might have heard the story of Jesus has driven us towards isolation, shame, and this burden to be more, do more, right, sort of thing. And so we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and we've been listening to the story that Ephesians tells us. Um, I won't do a ton of background here. You can go back and listen to, to previous episodes. <laughs> go back and listen to pre- previous sermons to see where we've been in Ephesians. But essentially this, Ephesians is a letter that is written to a, a broad group of churches where the, the author, Paul, is trying to help those churches have a sense of who they are as people, and then from there, give them a sense of vocation. What ought they be about? Who are they, and what is their business in the world? And, and we've been really centering on this idea of who we are. And don't worry, we're going to launch into a whole long conversation for weeks and weeks and weeks about what we ought to be about. Don't worry, that's coming. But if we flip those, and if we hear God telling us that you need to be doing these sorts of things without first hearing this very simple but very foundational and powerful reality that God loves you, we will miss it. We'll miss it. And so the story that Ephesians tells is a story where Jesus is at the center. This whole series is called Finding Our Center because I want us as a church and us as individual followers of Jesus to come back to this idea over and over and over and over again that Jesus is our center. Jesus is our center. Jesus is our center. We are not our center. Our jobs are not our center. Our families and our spouses and our kids are not our center. God forbid we put that on them. (laughs) But can I also just say this? Your shame is not your center. Listen to Ephesians. In verse 4, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up with me. You can choose the translation of your choice. Um, we're just going to be in the NASB updated version 2020 for the rest of Ephesians just because it's a simple, straightforward translation. But whichever translation you like, whichever one resonates with you, they've all got strengths, they've all got weaknesses. There are multiple translations in the seats in front of you. If you want to grab one of those, take it home, you're welcome to do that. Or you can pull out your phones. But after three verses of talking about our sin, Three verses of talking about how we have perpetuated our wrathiness, right? It's not God's wrath on us. It is our, like, tendency to be wrathful sorts of people who perpetuate wrath into the world. Notice God's response. And I, and I want to ask you, what have you heard that God's response to your sin is? What have you been taught? What have you been told? Hey, the good news is you've sinned, and here's God's response to your sin. I wonder how you might answer that question. 
Here's how Ephesians answers that question. And I would argue, here's how God answers that question for us. Verse 4. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were guilty. You were children of wrath. You were sons of disobedience. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved you, son of disobedience, sinner, wrathy person, because of his great love with which he actually and really and uh, tangibly loved you. God's response to our sin is not anger, wrath, destruction. It's not even judgment. God's response to our sin, according to Ephesians, is mercy. Why? Why mercy? Because he, he just has an abundance of love for you. Think of someone that you care about a lot. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a really close friend, um, a sister from another mister, I don't know. Someone that you grew up with that you like just have a fond affection for. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's a grandparent. I want you to think about the amount of love that you have for that person that you care about. And I want you to imagine a world where in that love, you would like murder them. <laughs> Right, and that's, that's you, and that's me. That, that's people that come to God um, week in and week out in confession, in limitation, in, in a recognition that we don't love perfectly. Now God, who is love, with this great love that he has for us, how does he approach us in our sin? God's disposition towards the disobedient, the sinful, the wrathy children is an abundance of mercy. And that word can mean a, def- a bunch of things, but it's kindness. It's uh, pity, not like in a negative way, but like in a really positive way, like a, an empathetic, like, ah, oh, I want so much better for you than this. And unless you think I'm being like, man, this is uh, 2024 woke progressive church, let's go back to the first century, second century, and let's listen to some of the early church fathers on this very passage, what they had to say. Um, a guy named Ambrosiaster, who we're all very familiar with, right? You got a tattoo of his quotes on your arms. He says this about this verse. These are the true riches of God's mercy, that even when we did not seek, even when we did, we did not seek it, mercy was made known to us through his own initiative. We weren't even looking for it. We were hiding. And God said, no, 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 I need, I need you to know my mercy. He goes on to say this, this is God's love to us, that having made us, he did not want us to perish. Literally quoting scripture there. His reason for making us was that he might love what he made. You exist because your creator longs to love you. 
I wonder if that's hard for you to actually believe. I know that's really hard for me to believe most days. And unless we think that this sort of love is this distant, theoretical, like, oh, that's really nice, he's God, he kind of has to love me. Ephesians, like, makes the point pretty bluntly and pretty forcibly. He didn't just love you in some sort of, like, spiritual, like, ethereal sense. He, like, tangibly, actively manifested his love for you. The power of God at work in Ephesians, is God's love made manifest in Jesus' death and resurrection. God's move towards you is not wrath. It's not violence. It's not judgment. God's move towards you, O oh sinner, is kindness and mercy because he loves you. Now, let's take a couple of steps back, right? If this is... Hopefully this at some level feels obvious, but when we compare it to like the story of the gospel that we hear, there might be some contrasting of like, wait, I've heard that I'm a dirty, rotten sinner and God's got to wipe me out. And so, well, but let's forget all that for just a second. And let's look at Jesus for a moment. How does Jesus treat sinners? He was so interested in communion with sinners that he was accused of being like, uh, a drunkard and a party boy. Jesus, you're too frat. Like, <laughs> why are you spending so much time with prostitutes? Don't you understand what that does to your reputation? Why are you spending so much time with tax collectors? Don't you understand what that does? Like, that is a shameful association. Now, I want us to hear this. The absolute most clearest and perfect revelation of God to all of the world is the person of Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know what God thinks of the world, look at Jesus. But more specifically, the early church helps us here. Yes, Jesus is the revelation of God, but beyond that, Jesus' cross is the clearest depiction of what God is like. So this idea that God's move towards us is not wrath, but is instead kindness, is not some sort of new age progressive. It's actually quite an ancient and old and deeply central Christian belief because we believe that Jesus Christ, who was the God-man, became man so that he might die for his enemies, so that he might die for the sinners that he loves. Listen to Hans Urs von Balthasar, another classic. He's actually a brilliant theologian. He's got a book on prayer that's on our shelf in the back. We have a little library back there. Feel free to always grab a book off the shelf, read it, bring it back when you're done. Great book on prayer. Um, but he says this. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, the Christ form is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is and what God is like. In other words, let's put it in Brandon language here. You want to know what God is like? It is in the paradox of the gruesome and grisly crucifixion of Jesus. The links at which love is willing to go 
to love one's enemies and redeem them in love. Jürgen Moltmann, who wrote a, a pretty important work when it comes to like, what, what is the cross actually doing called the crucified God? He says this, when the crucified Jesus is called the image of the invisible God, the meaning is that this is God and God is like this. Jesus is God's will and grace personified. God's love manifest. And God is at work to subject all things to his will, his grace, and his love in the person of Jesus. So when Ephesians talks about, hey, God loves you, it is not in some sort of distant pen pal sort of way. It is an inactive love. It is a love that has already and will continue to operate for you and with you and for your, like, betterment. And so uh, a little aside here as we come into Lent, this season where we are journeying with Jesus to the cross, um, there's a number of us that are like, Lent, cool, neat. There's a number of us that are like, man, Lent, this is my jam. And you're like all in. You're fasting and you're doing all the things. Regardless of where you're at, what I want to invite you into is the reality that, that Lent is an opportunity to experience more shame. Lent is an opportunity to experience more of the burden of having to put on for God. Lent, like so many other things that we do that are meant to foster an affection for God, can very quickly turn into this other thing. And so for those of you that have been in this season of Lent, I want to offer you a warning and a, a bit of encouragement. First off, the warning. Don't let Lent turn into this self-righteous, look how awesome I am sort of thing. Especially don't let Lent turn into this burdensome, challenging, shackling thing. For those of you that maybe like me are like a week and a half into Lent, you've already like, well, I've, I've screwed up Lent. Congratulations. That's kind of what Lent is all about. <laughs> but don't see that as like a, well, I guess I'm just done. I've got to sit on the sidelines until Easter and then start over again next year, there is really an opportunity at all points in time to just jump in and be with Jesus. Because the entire point of Lent is to recognize that on the cross, God has expressed his love for you, expressed his mercy on your like limitation and your failure and your disobedience, and has said, I love you anyways. Not in some sort of distant um, emotional way. Yes, absolutely an emotional way. But like beyond that, like I love you like this. I am going to make you whole. I'm going to renew you. And Ephesians goes on. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, God made us alive together with Christ. Right? So there's this, but God, and then you get this string of like explanation as to what God's about to do. And then we finally get to like the main action that God is up to. What is the thing that God has done in this passage? It is, he has made you who were dead alive. Right, so we're going back to this idea of shame as disconnection, as decommunion, as uncreation. Then what God is doing is he is restoring communion. Which simply put is this, he's actively loving you. 
by raising you up and making you whole and renewing you. And this is the antidote to our shame. I don't deserve love, but I love you anyways. I, I, I'm an unlovable person. doesn't matter. I've already loved you. You can't, can't undo it. But I don't, I, I don't know. I, I screwed up, and I, I can do better. You don't need to do better. I loved you today. I will love you tomorrow. I will love you to the end of time. You are loved. I am with you. I am making you whole. I love you. I love you. I love you. Communion. Communion. And in this communion, we become new. We move from creatures of shame to creatures of communion. We move from creatures in hiding to creatures who can then actually participate in the world, regardless of what happens to us, because we are deeply and profoundly convinced that God loves us. So watch, so this is the move that Jesus makes. This is the ultimate example that Jesus gives us. Like, here's what a perfect human being looks like. It is an utterly and secure attachment to the Father. In the face of all things that might convince you otherwise, Jesus says, no, 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 I I trust and I defend, uh, depend and am convinced that God loves me. Even to this point, that even if I die, God will raise me back up. Even if they take my life, God will restore my soul. Even if they persecute me, God will honor me. Even if they shame me, God will glorify me because God loves me. And at the end of the day, that is all that matters. I don't need anything else. This is what Lent is meant to form in us. And when it does, we are not then just people who have a nice like addendum to our lives. Like, I don't know, I'm an accountant and then sometimes like I go to church and it's cool. Or I'm like a student and then every now and then I'll go to church and Jesus loves me, which is kind of nice. But we become entirely new people And this language all, is all over the New Testament, that you are a new creation. Um, your old self has died. Your new self is resurrected. And this is what happens in our baptism. But I want you to hear, uh, I've got a few quotes from Jurgen Moulton here. But he says this about our faith. Christian faith isn't just a conviction. It's not just like, man, I really believe this. It's not even just a feeling or a decision. It invades our life so deeply that we have to talk about dying and being born again to describe it. And this is what corresponds to the death and resurrection of Jesus. That when we enter into the Godhead's love of us and for us, we cannot help but be changed. Redemption Church can be filled with people who are deeply invested in their own lives their own families, their own careers, their own stuff. Or Redemption Church can cling to the life-giving story of Jesus' death and resurrection, taken hold of by the reality that we are a radically new community filled with radically new people who are swimming in God's love for us. 
and going out and inviting the world to come swim in that love with us. People who were once dead have been gripped by love itself and made whole, made alive, reborn, made new, resurrected. And that story changes who we are. It's the antidote to shame. It changes our center. Right, we've all heard some sort of anecdotal story of a child grew up in a terrible home under terrible conditions and experienced all sorts of abuse. And as they grow up, chances are because of the violence that they grew up in, the violence that they experienced, they become violent people, perpetuating the violence in the world around them. So children, innocent children who are um, victims of violence often become adults who are perpetrators of violence. And, and the old creation story, the old man story, the old self story, tells, we tell the story that the way to solve that person's violence is through violence or the threat of violence. What Jesus depicts for us is that the way to make that person whole is not through violence, but instead is through love. And, and if we understand the story, like, it makes complete and total sense. What that child needed was not more violence. What that child needed was love. And if that child could experience actual real love, it would change the trajectory of that child's life. It is love that cures us. It's God that cures us. Verse 6. And God has raised us up with Jesus and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does it mean that you are seated with him? Right. So we're in our big picture, year of the table, where we recognize that Jesus has invited us to his table. The way that Jesus invites us to his table is he comes to earth, becomes a human being, experiences humanity, dies for humanity, is resurrected and vindicated by God, and then is ascended and seated at God's right hand. And then Jesus says, come and take my seat. Sit at my Father's table in my place with me. Come and experience the triune love of God. Come and commune with God. And so when Paul says, you are seated at the right hand of God, he is saying no less than you have been given the love that God the Father has for his son. That is the sort of love that God has for you. So who are you? You are a deeply loved, Sorry, you are deeply loved by a creator who will not rest until you are made whole. There's a, uh, a famous line in psychology, I think. You know, I've got several professional psychologists in the room, so I'm about to like, really expose myself. They'd be like, dude, get off Instagram, okay? Stop. But it's this idea that we move towards our dominant thought. Right? So if you just think really negative, terrible thoughts all day, this is where the power of positive thinking comes from, which I think is absolute garbage. But anyways, the whole other conversation. But I, I was kind of digging on this to be like, wait, what is this? Where does it come from? There's this paper that was written. Anyway, it, it says something along these lines. Uh, don't quote me on this because this is all terribly wrong. But in general, you get the gist, right? Something like, 
humans on average experience like 600 negative thoughts about themselves every day. They're just going through life with this tape recorder in their head talking about all the terrible ways that they've screwed up or terrible things that they are or whatever it is. And so like the world's response to that is, no, no, you should replace that with a, with a narrative that says, no, no, you're actually friggin' awesome. You're a great person and you screwed that person over, but that was actually a really good thing for you to do. Not a bad thing for you to do. You are king of the world. That's frowned upon as well. What if instead we replaced it with this, the story of Ephesians, the narrative that says you are deeply loved by the God of love who has gone to great lengths to redeem you, restore you, make you new, and make you all that you were meant and created to be. And one day he will assure you that you get there, but until that day, you can rest securely in this reality. You are loved, and you will continue to be loved no matter what. One last quote from Moltman. I found this. Um, this one, I, I'll get this tattooed on my throat, y'all. This is that good, okay? It's a little long to get a throat tattoo of, more like family or redemption. Uh, but anyways, here's, here's the quote. The ultimate reason for our hope as people of Jesus is not found at all in what we want, wish for, and wait for. The ultimate reason is that we are wanted, we are wished for, and we are waited for by a God of love. What is it that awaits us? Does anything await us at all, or are we all alone? Whatever we base our hope on trust in the divine mystery the God of love who has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, we feel deep down in our hearts there is someone who is waiting for you, who is hoping for you, who believes in you. We are waited for as the prodigal son in the parable is waited for by his father. We are accepted, we are received, and we are embraced as a mother embraces her children into her arms and comforts them. God is your last hope because you are God's first love. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.